This podcast was funded by Janssen Oncology. All right, well, hi, my name is Jay Rahman, and uh, I'm chair of the AUA Office of Education. And it's my pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Neil Shore here for one of our podcasts as part of the AUA Office of Education uh, podcast series. Um, Dr. Shore will be my co-host today. He is a practicing urologist in Myrtle Beach, uh, but he's also the medical director for the Carolina Urologic Research Center and has extensive clinical trial experience. I think he's uh, performed or been part of over 350 trials and has published extensively uh, in this space of urologic oncology. And uh, Neil, it's really my pleasure to, to have you here and to, to get some of your time uh, to talk about uh, genetic testing in bladder cancer, which is sort of our, our topic for today. Oh, thanks very much, Jay. It, it, it's certainly been uh, an exciting and uh, invigorating um, five, six years now in bladder cancer, uh, especially for systemic therapies. We, we've learned so much. Uh, and we've also learned a lot over in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, and we're learning more about um, markers in bladder cancer. Uh, so I'm really happy to be here with you, and, and thanks for inviting me. No, that's great. So I, I think you touched on maybe, you know, one of the first points that it may, perhaps you could help us understand, which is, uh, we know that there are markers. There are markers that are used for bladder cancer, maybe detection, for surveillance, and, and maybe talk to us a little bit about how is that different than perhaps genetic testing uh, in bladder cancer? Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we, we do um, a lot of different types of markers. They're largely urinary um, biomarkers as opposed to blood-based markers. Uh, for you know, our, for screening patients, arguably to see if they have microscopic hematuria. That's uh, uh, especially if they have risk factors, extensive smoking history, or carcinogenic exposures, environmental exposures, the, the things that we're all familiar with, uh, petrochemicals, asbestos, etc. Um, and, and most of these markers have been in the form of urine base. And, you know, there's, uh, of course, NMP22, immunocyte, CX detect. There's, there's many of these different markers, BTA. They've been around for quite a while. None of them have ever really achieved the level one evidence to say that, that you can exclusively use them. Of course, we look at, you know, urine-based cytology and, and fish as well. And, and they, I think together and collectively, everyone, you know, uses them sometimes as one, sometimes in a panel to help better understand, do I need to do cystoscopy? Um, uh, do I need to do more extensive evaluation of the upper tracts? Uh, how, are the, how is the patient responding to intravesical therapy? So we've been using these urine-based markers that are not necessarily have a hereditary or somatic genetic component from the tumor itself, but rather are molecular alterations in, in, in the cell morphology more than anything else. Sometimes uh, we can use them in panels. Sometimes there's some challenges in, in getting them um, reimbursed depending upon the, the patient's specific um, payer carrier. Uh, but I think, you know, it's still, there. there's really hasn't permeated into the guidelines, whether it's AUA or NCCN is evidence-based on a, on, a, on a rather, you know, broad level. 
Um, the genetic markers too, uh, you know, and it's a really important question because we're, we're our, in our prostate cancer uh, uh, um, patients, we're, we're learning and we're seeing evidence-based indications for testing, uh, you know, germline as well as um, acquired. And the germline is the type of uh, gene alterations that you would have inherited from uh, the your, your mother or father, the the uh, the 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 ova, their sperm forming the zygote, and, then, and if they're inherited, these gene alterations are in virtually every cell of the body. Somatic or acquired gene alterations are are derived directly from the tumor tissue itself. You can interrogate them uh, through the tissue or through blood-based testing, which is sometimes called you know a liquid biopsy. You know, the interesting thing. And the comparator comment is we, we always are fond of saying how uh, there's great heterogeneity in prostate cancer. Well, you know, there's great heterogeneity in bladder cancer, too. We now have evidence-based indications for getting uh, germline and somatic-based testing in, in patients who have significant family histories of, of not just prostate cancer, but breast or ovarian cancer. Uh, colorectal cancer, upper tract cancer, uh, and certain, you know, um, um, patients in, in certain uh, ethnic groups, for example, Ashkenazi Jews. And, and we're learning more about others that would have a germline risk. And of course, now all metastatic patients. Somatic tissue testing is, 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 is encouraged, considered in our patients who have MCRPC in prostate. Uh, and that's because we now have actionable um, uh, 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 findings. We have therapies that have been approved by the FDA. In bladder, we're not as advanced. We have a lot of heterogeneity. Um, there is no yet uh, uh, conclusive prospective uh, large-scale trials that have clearly demonstrated the value for routine uh, uh, genomic profiling. However, um, we do have some indications and some utilizations. They're, they're not enormously common. For example, if you're, um, you know, TMB high, tumor mutational burden high, or if you find microsatellite instability high, there are uh, the tumor agnostic indications, for example, to use pembrolizumab. So that, I, I hope that sort of, you know, helps us try to understand some of the differences between, you know, genetic markers as opposed to the more uh, common molecular markers that we use in, for urine-based testing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think you hit on something that I, I feel like we're appreciating more, which is really that you know all bladder cancer is not created equal, right? And I think you used the term very appropriately. It is really a very heterogeneous disease. And, and I, it seems like there's more and more being published that um, understanding and appreciating this heterogeneity allows you to perhaps better, uh, you know, tailor therapies, perhaps uh, accordingly. So, so maybe, you know, using that as a, as a, a launching point, you know, what would you say are, or from your perspective, some of the critical elements or what, what do we gain from the, the genetic testing of bladder cancer? How does that maybe impact what we do as clinicians? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question. I think, you know, there, the, if you approach it from the position, uh, where's the, the level one evidence to do it routinely? 
as opposed to where's the importance of learning uh, from clinical trial perspective and expanding our understanding of, of you know the atlas of genetic findings, which is there's been some great work in in, in doing this, and 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 we have to start somewhere. Um, I, I I like to be aggressive and test uh, my patients who have high grade NMIBC and muscle invasive bladder cancer. You know there are there is a, a body of of evidence saying if you have you know RB one loss or TP53, this suggests that you have the, uh, a more uh, oncosuppressive tumor environment. You're more likely to have muscle invasive disease. It may have more uh, a worsening prognostic implication. And additionally, you can look for what are called you know, FGFR3 mutations. Uh, these are, are more common in um, uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but they are also found in muscle invasive bladder cancer and, and particularly in patients who have metastatic disease. And about 20% of patients will have an FGFR gene alteration. And just two years ago, we had the first approval uh, of an oral uh, uh, therapeutic. It's the only oral therapeutic in bladder cancer, ertafitinib, which is approved for patients with metastatic uh, uh, transitional cell cancer uh, who have the FGFR3 mutation, uh, and particularly those patients who have, have progressed after chemotherapy or um, an, an immunotherapy. And, and I've, 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 I get it for those patients. I look for the TMB um, uh, high, the more than 10 megabases. And, and, and it, it's not most patients, but it can be some patients, and it, and it opens up your therapeutic armamentarium. And then talking about, you know, TP53 or RB1 loss, there are other uh, gene alterations that uh, we're learning more and more about. And I think we'll, we'll through biorepositories, uh, largely at, 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 at most of our, you know, cutting edge academic centers, we'll learn more about, you know, both the, the predictive and the prognostic value of having this information. Much like we did, uh, I think, the lessons learned for prostate cancer uh, gene alterations, uh, and, and even the ones what we call variants of uncertain significance. Um, and, and I think this will certainly, you know, pan out over time with bladder cancer. Yeah, it certainly seems like you, what you're highlighting is predictive ability, maybe prognosis, even as we look at different types of therapy, perhaps for the patients, whether it's, you know, radical cystectomy, role of adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapies, maybe even trimodality therapy. It seems like there's a lot of ability to uh, not only understand what may be the best treatment, but how the patient perhaps responds to it. Is that is that a reasonable statement? I think that's very reasonable. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, some of our, our current strategies, whether it's, you know, you know, the, the, as we typically refer to radical cystectomy as the gold standard, which it, it really is. Um, but, but nonetheless, we know that, you know, most patients, not all, but most would prefer to try something else to avoid uh, bladder removal. Uh, and so, you know, the, I think the, the area of, of, of trimodal therapy where we do a, a very aggressive or some, what some would describe as a maximal TURBT in combination with, you know, a chemotherapy radiation and radiation 
and now trials looking at the role for immunotherapy and it, you know the checkpoint inhibitors in particular. And it, it, are these beneficial indeed for patients who have certain types of, of gene alterations? Uh, does it matter if uh, they just have a PDL1 positivity based upon immunohistochemistry? Um, these are some really interesting areas that we're looking at right now, all in, in, in the under the, the, the purview of uh, trying to preserve bladder uh, integrity you know, as safely as possible. You know, I should also mention there's a lot of really good data just looking at, you know, circulating tumor cells now and, and even other um, HRR mutations. And the HRR, the homologous recombinant repair, I, I mentioned, we, we see that patients who have BRCA2 and and about the other, you know, 13 to add to the 14 HRR mutations that led to the uh, approval of a laparib and MCRPC patients who progressed after a novel hormonal agent, we, we find that there are HRR mutations uh, in patients with bladder cancer. So there are tr- ongoing trials looking at the role for PARP inhibitors. So I, I do think that, you know, uh, we're, we're still largely uh, in the nascency of getting adequate genomic profiling and testing in, bro- in prostate cancer, where there are broader um, um, guideline uh, um, uh, recommendations to do so. And there's certainly evidence-based literature. We're not, it's not as robust right now in bladder cancer, but there, there's certainly, it's an area of active interest. As I mentioned, the other, you know, potential uses uh, if you do find, you know, TMB high or MSI high, uh, FGFR3 mutations, I, I would encourage our urologic uh, colleagues who have uh, an ad- advanced cancer clinic, whether it's an advanced prostate cancer clinic or an advanced bladder cancer clinic or an advanced kidney cancer clinic, that these are really important ongoing uh, interrogations that they need to be aware of and, and become part of. So, Neil, maybe a, a really simple question which for, for most of us is, how do you get the genetic testing? I mean, what is this on tissue? Where do you get the tissue from? Blood, urine? Maybe you could comment a little bit on, on you know, how do we get this information? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, there, we've talked about the, you know, the why, and now you're asking, what, what, where's the how? And, 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 and is this going to be something I can do in the clinic? And, and is, this, is, is this cumbersome? And is it reimbursed? So I started doing genomic profiling back in, you know, 2016 uh, with germline testing, uh, which is, you know, real, it's really simple. That's just blood-based testing and, and, or a, a saliva test, a buckle smear. I, I, I get the blood test because we, we have, you know, the ubiquity of venipuncturists. Um, and uh, you... I, I've been pretty aggressive in getting, you know, somatic or tissue-based testing, certainly in, in my prostate patients, but in my bladder cancer patients as well. I want, and so it's a TURBT specimen. It's not a urine-based specimen. Uh, I haven't had a lot of um, uh, real-world experience using um, blood-based testing, although there is a lot of that that's going on right now from a research um, uh, undertaking. So the, the nice thing about, you know, um, doing a TURBT on a, on a reasonable size um, um, bladder lesion is there's a lot of tumor that can be interrogated. And there are, uh, you know, a, a number of, of um, tissue-based 
um, uh, sites or, or organizations, companies that can do this. Of course, if you're in you know an academic institution, you can do it in house, uh, and you have the capabilities and the wherewithal. It, there, it requires um, a, a sequencing capabilities. These are ex- expensive uh, and 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 capital intensive uh, uh, um, um, methodologies. What's particularly intriguing right now is with the aggregation of urology practices in the community. You know, uh, two, three, four-person groups have have aggregated to 15, 20, 30, 50-person groups, and the 25, 30, 50-person groups are aggregating amongst each other. That gives them the scale to potentially start thinking about doing their own in-house sequencing and genomic profiling. In, in, in not only in prostate cancer, but ultimately, potentially, would be my um, blue sky vision to do it in bladder cancer once we have the evidence to support it. So to get back to your question, simply stated, it's, it's tissue-based. Um, I invariably get interrogation of the immunohistochemistry for PDL one uh, positivity or not. There's some controversy as to how important that is to see a response. I think it's a pretty reasonable theme to suggest patients who have pdl one positivity as a general rule will have a, a more likely a greater response to uh, immunotherapy, but it's not always the case. Um, and, and so in, in terms of our research, you know, we, we see the approvals now starting in initially in, 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 in second line, then in frontline metastatic urothelial cancer. We're doing trials, as I mentioned to you a second ago, in trimodal bladder sparing, but there's been some really exciting work done in, in phase two studies in neoadjuvant immunotherapies. And, and a lot of that will be based upon, you know, the tissue and, uh, and the, the tissue biomarker interrogation of potential gene alterations. So um, I, I think, again, this, this, is, this is important um, organizations or companies such as um, Foundation Medicine, um, uh, as well as 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 Caris, um, are and and there are many many more that are entering into the field to do this uh, the the tissue interrogation for for bladder cancer as well. Um, uh, our colleagues listening may say, "Well, how's that going to get reimbursed?" It, you know, it, it, I I've been you know sending it out. Um, I haven't really had a lot of challenge. A lot of the companies will are, are, are doing it right now. I think for for um, I, you know both biorepository educational purposes, but one needs to be aware and 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 have a conversation with the company that you you may be thinking of using if you're not doing it in house to make sure there, there are no uh, unexpected uh, economic um, um, invoicing <laughs> and putting the patient at risk. And it seems like from what you're saying that, that not only would there be perhaps value in this, in the, in the TUR setting, but perhaps in those patients who have more advanced disease, who go on to a radical cystectomy, or maybe even those who have unfortunately a metastasis, that, that getting tissue from these sites and, and getting some information on uh, the genomic composition of these tumors may help with systemic type therapies for these patients with more advanced disease. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. You're absolutely right. Sure. You know, if you going, patients going to undergo a, a, a radical cystectomy with extensive node dissection, 
and the nodes are positive, this is a, a great opportunity to get you know further tissue interrogation and, and potentially learn from it. Now, again, I want to be clear: we're still you know um, we're still lacking you know I, uh, uh, optimal prospective large scale studies to tell us what to do with that information. Uh, but we're only going to get there if we get more of that information. So I think, you know, I, I don't want to be misleading at all to say that that should be, you know, it's not, a, a, there's no level one evidence to say that that's going to change things significantly. We have uh, really great studies that have been done, you know, that outline uh, the role for both neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as well as, you know, adjuvant potential use of adjuvant chemotherapy, and as well as adjuvant immunotherapy, um, uh, nectin-4 antibody therapies when those fail, as well as the use of ertafitinib, in addition, an FGFR3 inhibitor, in addition to the, the numerous, you know, combination clinical uh, formulations and, and new drug targets that we're, we're looking at. And, and because there are so many, uh, I'm a big believer that if we can obtain the, the, the tissue for genetic uh, um, alterations and have it, and of course, do it in a way that's economically sensible. And that's always a key thing, right? Just making sure we're not putting the patients at risk. And, and I'll be, I'll be frank. I, I haven't had that problem, and I'm in the community. Um, you know, uh, it, it just, it just gives us more information. Some of our colleagues may say, "Well, wait a second. How am I supposed to, you know, understand this report?" You know, sometimes you find some things in there. For example, like HRR mutations. Um, you know, which makes you think that you may want to go and then get, you know, germline testing because that can inform the, the patient uh, and, and his or her family of some additional cascade family genetic counseling. So that, that's, that's another sort of uh, additional consideration. So, you know, we, we've seen, and I think we're a little bit further in this life cycle, perhaps in prostate cancer, right, right where advanced prostate cancer is increasingly uh, being managed by many urologists, right? We, we've now developed the armamentarium, the comfort level uh, for managing in a disease space that perhaps 10, 15 years ago we didn't. And so I guess my question is, um, all right, so we, we have a urologist, you or I or anybody, and we do, we do the genetic testing on a TUR specimen or a cystectomy specimen. How do you sort of envision that kind of coming back to the practice? You know, are, are urologists going to be able to perhaps take this information and, and, and play a role in the therapies that they deliver as more of these move to the office setting? What, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I love that question uh, because, you know, the, 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 the field of genomic profiling in geo-oncology is just burgeoning, right? You know, we're really in, in, in its nascency. And, and we know this, and I, we, I've done some work looking at, you know, various, you know, data registries, and even our medical oncology colleagues are, are not taking advantage of the opportunity to do genomic profiling in, in prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. I, and we, and I, I, I certainly know that that's going to change for our medical oncology colleagues and neurologists in the community, and I, and I think the same analogy will be there for us in bladder cancer. Uh, how we learn this information, you know, ideally has to start in, in, at our residency and fellowship level. But for all of our colleagues who are, who are, who are postgraduate, it, it's courses that, you know, the AUA can put on. It's courses that the SUO can put on. 
uh, its courses that LUGPA can put on. And, and there are many other, you know, really ideal CME uh, course providers. Uh, the, the, this is a, a just such an a, a absolutely fascinating area of interest because it hopefully will give us a, a clinically actionable information to say, okay, yeah, you've got, you know, an RB1 loss and perhaps, you know, another, you know, uh, uh, gene alteration that you're, you're, you'd be able to tell the patient, you know, he or she would be uh, better suited for um, a, a chemotherapy versus a combination of a chemotherapy and, and something else, or perhaps not. Maybe there's a, a different drug target or an immunotherapy. It, 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 it speaks to this notion of precision medicine. And that's really where the goal, the goal is. That's the holy grail. It, it, you know, we've all realized it, it's never really a one-size-fits-all. It's this precision-based therapy based upon either the hereditary gene alteration or the, the somatic-acquired gene alteration. We certainly know that uh, you know, over 90% of tumors have some uh, you know, classic genetic uh, or, or, or molecular alteration. Uh, I saw an interesting piece of data the other day that about 40% of, on, of all of oncology trials going on are geared towards uh, a, a, with a biomarker with a, 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 a genetic alteration. Hmm. And I think that's only going to advance over time. Um, and and you know, certainly in, in lung cancer and other cancers, we're, they, they've made incredible progress and understanding, you know, different uh, therapeutic selection, precision medicine for patients with certain gene alterations, and and I, I'm clearly, you know, uh, op, you know, uh, bullish that that'll be the situation for us in GU oncology. So it seems like if if somebody is a urologist or any kind of a practitioner is interested in doing this, th- there's a few things that they probably need to think about from what you're saying. One is. Is, is certainly the financial implications of it, you know, the insurance coverage or that lack thereof. Um, and, and then second, perhaps sort of how to use this information optimally to sort of inform the patient. And, and I think you touched on it, but maybe it, it sounds like some sort of framework of using either courses or through some of the national organizations or billing and coding is almost an essential component before perhaps going down this. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. You know, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I hear um, oftentimes from uh, our colleagues is, well, you know, this is really should, some will say this should really just be the realm of a certified genetic counselor. And in an ideal world, I would say, sure, that makes perfect sense. Uh, unfortunately, we have a paucity of certified genetic counselors. There's only around a little over 3,000 in the entire country, and we're a population of 330 million. And not all of them are certified or specialized in oncologic assessment. Many of them are more focused on, you know, uh, reproductive uh, counseling. So if you have a certified genetic counselor and you can get an appointment and get it done expeditiously, that's fantastic. But that's just not a practical reality in the U.S. It's certainly not a practical reality for our many of our colleagues outside of the U.S. So I think, you know, the burden, the educational burden is on us. 
Now, you, you, you shouldn't be ordering a test if you don't know what to do with the information, but claiming that level of ignorance is not sufficient to not order the test it's just because you don't know what to do with it or, or how to interpret it. Then you need to find somebody to help you do it. Well, if you don't have a certified genetic counselor, then the burden is on you as a provider of advanced cancer care, either yourself or one of your colleagues. And even now, arguably, I think we're, we're starting to take much greater advantage of advanced practice providers. And it could be um, a nurse practitioner or physician assistant who becomes dedicated to understanding the reports and becomes dedicated to understanding the information. It's, it's, it, it, there has to be a, pa- a passion to do this. Mm-hmm. There has to be an ongoing education. I say ongoing because I'm continually reading, you know, the, the literature and, and what's going coming out and what's going forward and what's being studied. I think sometimes some of our colleagues will say, well, look, you know, they'll say, Neil, um, these reports are long. They're they're filled with lots of acronyms and word salad soup. And and, you know, I, I can't really there's there's uh, there's no coding for this. And I know in the majority of the times there's nothing actionable. So, you know, I, I don't want to be bothered. Uh, and I, uh, my pushback to that would be is, I you know, I, I first of all, a I appreciate that commentary. It's a practical and a real consideration. But we, we still need to be, you know, up to speed on what's evolving. Mm-hmm. We need to be, you know, physician scientists at our core. And so figuring out a way to uh, be able to uh, order testing when it's appropriate, when it's covered, when there's l- uh, level one evidence, if you're doing it, you know, um, and it's not within uh, for clinical trial purposes or research purposes, I appreciate that. But, you know, getting uh, on top of it, uh, going to courses that the AUA offers, whether they're virtual or in person, these are the types of things that will continue you to, you know, broaden your um, advanced cancer care bona fides, which is absolutely essential to, to understanding what's going to happen, you know, in this 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 realm of precision medicine. Well, that's really great. Well, Neil, I, I really appreciate uh, the time. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, very informative, and uh, and I do appreciate our audience taking the time uh, to listen to our, our conversation today. Uh, certainly, for any other information, please visit uh, auanet.org slash university. And uh, I thank you all very much for your attention. And again, Neil, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Jay.